All right, welcome back, Six Overtimes friends. This is the Friday edition of the Six Overtimes podcast. Chaz Wagner here in New York. Joining me on the line is my co-host, Scott Wildermuth. How are you, sir? Doing well, doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Friday, uh, December 16th, getting close to Christmas time, the holiday season. Yes, we said Christmas. might not be politically correct, but we went there. Uh, we want to talk to you today about the games. Uh, there were no games last night. Wednesday night, there were three games. All Big East teams took care of business. Cincinnati wins in a swarm of adversity, Scott. South, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, they did not win all the games. I am, I am totally off. <laughs> um, we, we thought they were all cupcake games, but, uh, au contraire. Since he won, excuse since he did win, they beat a Wright State team. South Florida is the team that lost. They, uh, continue their bad play. They lose to, they, they get down by Auburn. And then Scott DePaul beats uh, an Illinois foe in northern Illinois. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think USF continues to prove that they're just awful in the second half. And I really want to just talk about Cincinnati a little bit. And, you know, it's fo- this is the first game following their huge fight with Xavier where Yancey Gates and uh, Czech Mabuje were suspended for six games and Guyna Lewin was suspended, so they were without a lot of guys on their front court and they still managed to beat uh, the Wright State Raiders 78-58. to So, nice win by uh, Cincinnati. It wasn't really close in the first half. Um, good to see. Yeah, when I, I didn't see the very start of this game, when, but when I turned it on middle of the second half, and as, as you were talking about, the game tipped off at 7, I believe. By 7.30, this game was, was practically over. And I was not expecting this at all. Uh, as you probably weren't either. Yeah, you know, I uh, I bet on Cincinnati giving four points, thinking that they would be able to rally together and, and really put forth a great effort, but there's no way I was expecting a 20-point win. I mean, like you said, it was over by 7.30. That's when I turned it on, and it was a 15-point game or so by then. And it's one of those eye test things, too, where since he was just in control of everything, they controlled the tempo. Um, Wright State looked like they were forcing everything and forcing bad shots. It just looked like Cincinnati had complete and total control the entire game. Yeah, they totally dominated this game. And do you think that it, there was a chip more on, on Cronin's shoulder to come out and, and, and play well like they did, or the players that the remaining players that actually played in this game saying, you know, the the, the program is, is being shed in a bad light. We want to go out and prove that this is not what we're about. And even though we weren't the ones that were really guilty and involved in this fight, that, you know, we really want to show the nation we're on national television tonight that, that we are uh, a good program. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of both uh, the players and the coach. They want to sh- come out and show that they're, a legitimate team, especially in the um, Ohio region where Wright mm-hmm. State is also located. I mean, they want to show that they can play another rivalry game without getting into a fight, that they aren't thugs, um, you know, whatever Two Holloway was saying. But Gangsters. Yeah, they. Uh, I, I think that they played really well. And um, Mick Cronin's been getting a lot of accolades for – how he's been approaching this whole thing uh, in a national, from the national media, and 
I, I don't know if he has a chip, but I think the players definitely have a chip to say we can still win without these guys. Yeah, especially uh, Parker. That was an amazing game by Parker, who had a touring groin muscle in the last game, and this guy came out and played very well. And then Kilpatrick didn't play that. I don't think he played that well in the Xavier game, but he came out in the first half and, and really brought it. Um, yeah, you're right about Cronin. You saw him in, in some interviews with, I believe it was Andy Katz during the game. I'm, I don't think Andy Katz would have went to the game unless there was this um, stuff yeah, going, right. going on around the game. Cronin's, uh, he's taking this on. I mean, he's not shying away from it. He's saying, we screwed up. We, we need to repair our image. We need to do things that, that are positive for the program. And, and he's taking it on, uh, you know, like, like a good D1 coach would. Yeah, he's doing it the right way. And, you know, we speculated on how much you can really uh, interpret a player's apology um, following the fight. And that's sort of what Cronin was saying, that he was going to base uh, his reinstatement of the players who were suspended on. I think that it's worked out to the best possible <laughs> point that it that it could. Um, I think a lot of people are giving him credit for standing up and calling out his players in a national forum and not doing it behind closed doors, um, showing the fan base that he means business and that the program needs to uh, be revolved around good individuals and good character player uh, guys and then basketball being second so I think that uh, Cronin deserves everything that he's he's been getting and and, and he, you know congrats to the Bearcats I guess yeah definitely a good night for them other than rather than last weekend moving on we spoke of South Florida continuing their struggles Scott and they these guys lost 52 to 40. And I don't know if this was the continuation of the Big East SEC Challenge where these teams were delayed by, you know, two or three weeks where the other teams played late November, early December. But anyways, this game was played at Auburn. It looked like a high school crowd there. There was hardly anyone at the stadium. Uh, believe it or not, this game was on the Yes Network here in New York. I don't know how many. There had to be a ton of people tuning in for, for this riveting matchup between <laughs> two two schools, fifty two to forty. I gotta say, it's it's like a Big Twelve football game. Uh, you know, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, this this type of score. But actually, this this was a forty minute college basketball game. Scott, another number: the football team, which struggled this year, the South Florida football team, actually put up seventy and fifty two points in two games throughout this year. So. Uh, 40 points is is not a lot to put on on the board. Yeah, I mean, South Florida is just they, they're just struggling in all terms of the game. Like I think we've talked about how badly that they turn the ball over a mm-hmm. ton. We've talked about how in the second half it seems like they play with their com- competition in the first half and then they just totally fall off a cliff in the second half. I just it's it's bad shooting. You know, they shot 33% from the field and mm-hmm. 50% from free throw, the free throw line. I mean, it's all those things that continue to add up, and it just shows that they can't score. <laughs> it's just simple. It's, that's, yeah. that's what it is. 
Right. I think they have scores and they have athletes, but they don't have a team offense. It's not a cohesive unit where it's like we, all five of us, the people on the court, we need to find a way to put the ball in the bucket. It's okay. I need me individually. I need to find a way that I can, I can score. And so what you see is guys chucking up shots from 25 feet. You see Torlin Fitzpatrick, who I don't believe is a good outside shooter. He's chucking up shots with 30 seconds on the shot clock. You have guys getting the ball at the top of the key, putting their head down, and not even considering the other four guys in the court and plowing straight ahead. And that's what leads to those those low shooting numbers. I don't think they turned the ball over all that much in this game. I didn't see the final turnover number. But it's a lot of selfishness. And they, Scott, they even started to get what's, what's kind of ironic. They started the game out 7 nothing on a 7 nothing run, if you want to call it. Yeah. And Auburn, Auburn even had to call a timeout because South Florida started the game off so hot. <laughs> and then, and then you see. And then the Auburn game, goes on a 52 to 33 run. <laughs> they're known for those. They're known for those. Uh, yeah, exactly. And they, it wasn't as much a second half, Scott. I know they struggled in the Kansas game. And I want to say the VCU game is where they really had some second half struggles. They had 20 points in the first half and they followed up with 20 points in the second half. So it was, it was consistently ugly, bad, ugly all the way around. And another ugly thing that I want to talk to you about is Ron Anderson, Ju- Ron Anderson Jr. He's a forward for South Florida, his free throw shooting. I watched this game from the end of the first half all the way through the end of the second half. He got the line four or five times of what I saw. And he had about the most despicable free throw shooting I've ever seen. I mean, it can't be worse than Anthony Mason, though. His form? Well, I, I, yeah, I'll clarify. <laughs> Anthony Mason's form is uglier, but Ron Anderson's, the result of his free throws, these things were barely touching the rim. I mean, he what, what he does that's bad, um, he leans back, so he takes it up, you know, dribble, 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 takes it back, and he's leaning. It's like he's falling back to the three-point line. Which, why isn't Stan He's coaching staff getting You need to be leaning. I'm not a free throw shooting expert, but you need to be leaning towards your target. Yeah, and fadeaway free throw shooting is just fadeaway three good. free throw shooting is not going to work. And that's why he's he was barely hitting the rim. And the guy's plenty Humbly. strong. It's all, uh, so, so that's bad. And there were some things about Augustus Gilchrist, who probably is their best player when it's all said and done. But. I take it as this this guy looks when he runs, Scott, this guy looks like he has stilts or pins. Like he has stilts on or he has pins in his knees where it's a it's a non-fluid motion as he's running up and down the court. Unlike some of these freak athletes in the Big East where they can get from one side of the court to the other just like that. And and he he looks weird running. Yeah, I mean, Gilchrist, he's South Florida's best player, but I don't know if he's the best player, you know, on he would be the best player on Pitt or Syracuse or, you know, an upper echelon Big East team. I was sort of impressed with him and, you know, I so I'm on the other side of the ball. And I only watched about 6 or 7 minutes of this game, but he had a pretty quick first step. I I didn't see that he was he didn't seem all that fluid when he was running consistently, but 
He did have that quick first step, and being a six-nine forward, I think that that's that'll open up some doors for you. But you know, I, I think what was really uh, perplexing to the two of us was that he scored ten points in the first eight minutes, and then just disappeared for the rest of the game. He didn't score a single point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need you you've spoken about Yuru. It's the same story. There's a lot of parallels in that. Coaches always say, "Let's get it down low to the big man." Let's develop an inside presence, a post presence. Then that opens up the entire game. Stan Heath did that. They got it to him early, 10 points early, you know, midway through the first half. They went away from it. I don't think he scored the last 32 or 30 minutes. You see that all the time. Then you start getting it out with the guards, and they don't kick it back in the post. Sorry for where you went off on a tangent on the South Florida-Auburn game, but, you know, there wasn't – the big boys weren't playing – Last game of Wednesday night, Scott, was DePaul taking down the Northern Illinois Huskies, running back you with Michael Turner and who's the other Garrett boy? Garrett Wolf. Garrett Wolf. He hasn't Garrett really Wolf. Made, he hasn't really made a name for himself in the NFL all that much, but a beast. He, he was so good in college, though. So good. Um, seventy-five fifty-two looks like Melvin played pretty well, and. Um, you know, nice effort from Kelly and Young as well, Scott. Yeah, we can we continue just to talk about those big three, and then the uh, big question is who else is going to score? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's I feel like a broken record saying that Melvin can score the ball and Brandon Young can score score the ball, and Jeremiah Kelly is is getting to the free throw line a lot. But I want to focus on Chris Faber a little bit here because. You know, DePaul beat Northern Illinois by 23 points, who's 0-10 now. So there's not too much to talk about there. But, you know, I thought that Faber was playing so poorly this year. And then I actually looked at his um, at his numbers comparatively to last year, and all of his efficiency numbers are up from last year, except for the amount of times he's shooting the ball. Mm-hmm. So... Hmm. You know, it's 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 once again perplexing that it's same thing with USF, and we've talked about this with Nova and uh, Yaru. It's where they the team just doesn't give the ball to the big man down low, and I think that they're going to have to establish him as a fourth fourth scorer uh, going forward, especially when they're playing against these bigger guys down in Big East play. Yeah, is is it he's not getting. The actual touches, like he's literally not being integrated into the offense, or he gets the ball and he's timid and he'll kick it back out to to a guard. Yeah, I mean, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I've only watched a couple of games since uh, DePaul's pretty regionally televised, but it's your weekend homework. Yeah, from from what I've seen is that it's just so dominated by Brandon Young and Cleveland Melvin that it's hard for anyone else to get touches. Yeah, and um, a guy shooting sixty percent from the field and ninety percent from the line. Are you, you'd like to see him shoot a little bit more. Exactly, and the the only other thing that I want to touch on real fast is that he seems to get in foul trouble a lot, and that sort of just limits your ability to take shots because you're physically not on the court. Yeah, so it limits your playing time. Yep, he's got to move his feet a little bit on defense. Well, weekend homework. One, you you need to figure out why why these stupid fouls are occurring and why how many touches he's getting. Done. Done. No no fantasy uh, 
homework, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So players of the week, Scott, who who's it going to be? Who's who's your guy? Well, it seems like we're lumping it together and both taking Cincy boys. I'm going to take uh, Jaquan Parker, who came back for his second game since he tore his groin, and he's been pretty impressive to me. Uh, he's got a quick first step. He looks for his own shot and seems to have a good stroke uh, from the outside as well. I think that he's going to be a very integral part of this Cincinnati team, especially when uh, Gates and Mabuja and, and the rest of them get back because he's going to be their big-time bench guy, which is what we've been talking about all season is how Cincinnati lacks depth, mm -hmm. and I think that he's going to be able to fill that hole. What about you? Where are you going on Cincinnati? A guy that is certainly not a bench player but a star player for Cincinnati is Kilpatrick. He had 20 points, hit six trays in this game, and played really well in the first half, got these guys up early, a nice, comfortable lead, and they were able to sustain that. Him as a leader, it was good to see that uh, carry carry the guys. Um, we'll see how he if he can continue that through the, the tough December stretch um, in the suspension. I'm interested to see, you know, they play a, a decent Oklahoma team, uh, in a few weeks to see how Kilpatrick, uh, a much improved Oklahoma team, to see how Kilpatrick uh, matches up against those guys. Certainly. And, uh, you know, uh, all good things for the Bearcats following such a crappy week for them. Um, but let's go into our power rankings, and I think this is the uh, second one we're going to publish and third one overall. Uh, not much movement at the top there, huh, Chess? Yes, they just keep on trucking. So... Scott, how we we've basically broken it down into three tiers, and this top tier we start with obviously Syracuse. If they're number one in the overall rankings, I think they're going to be number one in in a conference ranking. You, you would think. Um, we we have you could go both ways, but we went with UConn as number two, being placed over Marquette because we've sided with where how good can this team be in March and maybe even April, and we think that UConn just has a little bit more to take them through that, that tough stretch in March. Marquette at number three, uh, they, they're definitely in the Tier 1, meaning that they can get to a Final Four. And then Louisville, we it's kind of the sentiment. Uh, Louisville is at number four, Scott. The sentiment that is across ESPN had a question that was posed out there, which team in the top 15 do you not trust? Four out of the six college basketball writers for ESPN said Louisville. Even though they're winning, they're not they're not great wins. They haven't beaten anyone exceptional. So that's who we have at number four. And that kind of rounds out our, our tier one, Scott. Yeah, and I totally agree with the guys on ESPN about Louisville. And I think it's because they play this fluid style of offense where it's sort of beat you down the court. And if we can, we're going to beat you pretty badly. And if not... Um, we're going to struggle a little bit in the half court. So f in order for me to trust them and move them up in our power rankings, i got to see them be a little polished in the half court set. And when they're playing against teams that uh, are a little bit more athletic than they are or uh, at their same level, like Memphis this weekend, it's going to be interesting to see how they uh, attack a team like that. Um and then I guess we got the next tier, and these are guys, and 
that really can cause problems, I think, and win a couple of games in this in this uh, Big East season. But that all have major question marks, and the and the first one's uh, Pittsburgh, and you know, I just. I struggle to see how they're going to consistently score if if they don't have Ashton Gibbs on at all times. Um, followed by Georgetown, which is a Hoyas team that is led by uh, Henry Sims and Hollis Thompson, and and they've been really good, but they also have a depth problem where they really only play six guys. Um, and then to round out that next tier, I guess it's probably West Virginia, uh, Providence College, and Cincinnati. Oh. Whoa, what about our boy? Showing no love. <laughs> Herbie Pope and the, and the Seton Hall, Herb Pope and the Pirates. Oh, Herbie Pope? Uh, yeah, I mean, Herb Pope's having a fantastic year. I think we've talked about him a ton on the podcast, and uh, he's in the top 10 nationally in both points scored and rebounds per game. Oh, totally. And if we're going to have Providence in Tier 2, we've got to have Seton Hall. Um. So those are, I think, Tier 2, lumping those teams, those are NCAA-worthy teams. They need to go through the rugged 18-game schedule. But right now, I would say they're in the 65-team um, composite. They, w- they would make uh, Joe Lenardi's bracketology. The Tier 3 is where it, it drops off quite a bit. We have Cincy there because it's it's. Uh, I don't think they're worthy of uh, – you know, an NCAA bid right now. Then we have Notre Dame, Notre Dame at the 11 spot going through some struggles. And when you get blown out to teams like Missouri and Gonzaga, good teams in their, in their respect, you know, in their respect, but uh, getting blown out is not a good thing. Villanova, you've, you've talked a lot about their struggles, Scott. We have them at 13 big game against St. Joe's this weekend in the, in a big five game for them. DePaul is at 14. No real quality wins for, for them to speak of and, and a few bad losses. St. John's, very few wins, a lot of bad losses. Rutgers at 15, rounds it out. And then South Florida, 16. We had them at 14 or 15 prior to Wednesday night, but after Wednesday, Wednesday night against Auburn, they put them uh, at the bottom of the basement. Yeah, I mean, all those teams really have a... They have an uphill battle for the rest of the year, but I think the two teams out of that group that you can be uh, most optimistic about, uh, besides Cincinnati, is Villanova and DePaul. And I think if if things go their way, and we talked about this on Wednesday, if Nova makes shots, they can they can really steal a win from most anyone. I think on this list, um, and DePaul with Melvin and Brandon Young, I mean. That's a pretty good scoring combination, and I think if they go off, um, they can they can compete with a lot of these. Yeah, teams you're right as well. about stealing wins. They posed a question on ESPN: When does Syracuse incur their first loss of the season? And a lot of people said when Marquette in the middle of January goes to goes to the Carrier Dome. But a couple of the ESPN writers actually said when Syracuse has to travel travel down to Villanova. Because, like you said, they're an up-tempo team. If they're if Wayans gets hot, if Cheek gets hot, if Yaru is clicking and dominates Mello, that could be Syracuse's first loss. So, like you said, they're they're talented. It's just execution on their end. It's exactly it's it's definitely execution. It's making those outside shots. 
Um, but let's go into a little bit of a preview for Saturday's games. And they look like a hell of a schedule. I'm really excited. It's going to be a lot better than having to suffer through Temple, Wyoming bowl games. Um, and I, I encourage you to check out some of these hoops games because there, there are a lot of good ones. And I want to touch on uh, the Memphis-Louisville game that's on at 4 o'clock on Saturday on CBS. And this is going to be a game that's just going to be up and down the floor. We saw them uh, Memphis play Georgetown earlier, and that was just an unbelievable game where it's just showing off each other's athleticism and get and scoring in the 90s. Um, so that's going to be a really entertaining game to, to watch. Yeah, Memphis has incurred three losses this year, but as Scott said, to three good teams, Georgetown, uh, who else? They lost to Michigan, who's another was another ranked team, and then Murray State, who is everyone, who is everyone's mid major darling. They're playing great. I mean, they're they're playing like a Creighton or a, a Gonzaga, and, and could do some damage in the tournament. Um, Memphis up tempo, you know, very athletic team. Uh, I know Rick Pitino in his in his press conference this week doesn't know if he can match up with that you know, transition of, of Memphis, but he said they're going to try. But on the same token, can can Memphis hang with Louisville and their very efficient half-court offense? So it's that's going to be a good game. And then there's a doubleheader in the Garden. Uh, not, not the great games in the Garden that we've seen last weekend with Duke, Washington, and Pitt and Oklahoma State or some of the other preseason tournaments. But this one has... Uh, Rutgers and Stony Brook playing at noon, and then two New York teams going at it. Fordham playing St. John's at 2.30 in the Garden. Battle of New York, Fordham not a very good team. They lost by Cuse, two Cuse by 25 in the opener, and they even lost to, we talked about Monmouth the other night. They These guys, one of Monmouth's few wins this year was was against Fordham. So you would hope, Scott, that St. John's can pull out the win. On Saturday, yeah, I mean it's a necessary win for the Johnnies, and uh, I was looking just to get a little bit of a feel for Fordham, and it seems that the only thing that they do reasonably well is rebound the basketball. So I think the key to uh, the Johnnies making sure that they win this game is God's gift, and making sure that you know He really makes His presence be known down low on the block, and especially on the offensive glass. Um, but, you know, we have a couple of other games here that I, I think warrant a lot of uh, discussion. And to me, the next really great game is this Syracuse-NC State game in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, you know, I, I, it's NC State isn't going to be the greatest team that Syracuse plays this, this year, but it is a true road game. It's in Raleigh. Um, NC State is an ACC team, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how they match up. Yeah, first true road test, but this is a common thread in every Syracuse season. They're, Syracuse is playing somewhere in the state of New York for about the first 10 or 12 games, so nothing different for a, a Bayheim coach team. And going on the road, it's not the RBC arena anymore, Scott. It's the PNC arena. Uh, PNC... A Pittsburgh bank, a, f- a local bank of mine. I still ha- do my banking with Pittsburgh, even though I'm in New York. They're flexing their muscles, going outside of their region, 
and sponsoring banks. I think they just acquired, maybe it was RBC, or they acquired someone in North Carolina. And they're using, uh, maybe they're even using some of their tarp funds, the the leftover tarp funds to sponsor sponsor some marinas out there. <laughs> and I would hope for NC State Wolfpack Nation that the Wolf they don't perform like the Pittsburgh Pirates have in PNC Park. So hopefully that doesn't carry over into into the play the play inside the venue. But yeah, about this game, this is part of a either a one and one or a series between NC State and Syracuse. Last year these teams played obviously up at the Carrier Dome as part of being a series. NC State played really well actually. They were up fifty six to fifty one with five or six minutes left, Scott, and it looked like they were gonna they were gonna pull it out and literally the wheels came off in those last five minutes, committed eight turnovers and they only scored three points in those last five or six minutes. They ended up losing 65 to 59. You know, a, a, a moral victory, whatever you want to call it, but to see a team collapse that badly uh, was a tough thing. And they, they lost on the turnover uh, margin to the, the Syracuse team. So that's going to be the key in this game is taking care of the basketball against that, that 2 3 zone. And especially Dion Waiters, who is has been a. Uh, a ball pass all over the court. Yeah, it's going to be. Uh, let's see if they can learn something from the game from the game that they lost last year when they had in their grips. Um, you know, whenever I see like a lesser team collapse at the end of the game, it's sort of like they have to play at 130 percent of their talent level, and then they just have they just can't sustain it for 40 minutes. So. Let's see if they can do that this year. I, I sort of think Syracuse is going to go in and beat the hell out of them, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, and then another game that I think we should really uh, chat about is this Villanova-St. Joe's Big Five game on, at 8 o'clock on CBS College Sports Network. If you don't have that package, it's pretty awesome when it comes to uh, college basketball season, and especially during... Um, during uh, season play, it's they they really do a great job there. Um, anyhow, uh, this this is a big game for both teams. I mean, St. Joe's is coming off a big win against number seventeen Creighton last Saturday. They have a good team. They have a uh, nice guard guard play and, and a pretty decent forward. Um, it, it's going to be a tough one for Nova, and we're going to need uh, Yuru and. Uh, and Wayne's and Cheek to really make some shots. Yeah, on C- CBS College Sports Network, it's good, but I just don't see I don't see my getting all that much value out of. The, there's so many games. I, I guess I would say it because there's so many games on ESPN three now that okay, I might not be able to watch the Villanova Saint Villanova Saint Joe's game, but God, ESPN is just. Given me my fix, uh, it's all, I can't even keep up with all the games they have on there now. But for who, whoever has it, it you know it it, w- it will be good. This is the first time in this the holy war, as as they call it down in Philly land. You know, Scott, uh, first time in the holy war history that this game is not played at the Palestra. That that everybody knows that that's on Penn's campus. Big five games are always played there, but because St. Joe's has struggled mightily. These last few years, one on the court, you know, just record-wise, and two because of that, 
the result is they've struggled to get students and fan interest of people going over to the Palestra for this game. They've moved the game to Hagen Arena, which is St. Joe's uh, on-campus arena. They just did some renovations. It's supposed to be beautiful after these renovations. And Jay Wright took it in stride. It was you, you might see a coach as, definitely as part of a, a rivalry environment kind of be upset by by that and, and breaking from tradition. But, you know, he took it like a champ, and he wants to do what whatever is good for kind of the greater Philly College Hoops environment. Certainly, and it's always wild when two, when two Philly teams come together and they play against each other, and, and especially when it's on, uh, you know, St. Joe's home court. It's going to be an interesting game, and, you know, there are a couple other ones that I just want to glance over real fast. Uh, on Saturday, we have Notre Dame visiting Indiana, who's still probably on a high after beating uh, Kentucky last Saturday. Um, you know, Notre Dame, we've talked about their struggles pretty frequently on this on this program, and, you know, I, I have a hard time thinking that they're going to beat Indiana in Indianapolis. I mean, it's a, it's a definitely a rivalry game, and you know, the fighting Irish faithful will certainly be out there, but I, I don't see them having the horses. Yeah, Indiana's been damn good this year. Yeah. You know, beating Kentucky. But I don't think it's a team. They're not super athletic or, or so good at this point just yet. Speaking of Indiana, that Notre Dame can't hang with them. Um, a little bit context about this game and background on this game it's 4:30 at Conseco Fieldhouse. It's not. It's a neutral court. Although there's probably going to be more Indiana fans there. But if you're an Indiana basketball fan, which there's a ton of them out there in in the great state of Indiana, you're going to be in India Indianapolis on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Notre Dame's game is the second of two. Butler and Purdue are playing at two o'clock, and then Notre Dame Indiana at 4:30. So. If I if I lived in the great state of Indiana, I would just be licking my chops for for what's to come on uh, on Saturday afternoon. Um, yeah, yeah, great we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll see how Notre Dame hangs. Especially, I'm interested in the matchup between Cody Zeller, who is a super freshman, putting up 15 and seven already, going up against Jack Cooley Scott, who probably <laughs> has had his best best you know few games. He I think he put up a career high. In, in points is his last several games, so it's going to be interesting to see how he can hang with, with a player like Zeller. I, I can't believe that that came out of your mouth and you're actually being honest with everyone. Jack what did Cooley, I say? Jack Cooley's a bum. He's slow. What? Zeller's going to dominate him. It's we'll not see. even going to be a contest. Jack Cooley just... It's against two teams that didn't have anyone... Who did they play where it was just... When they played Maine, he had played, 22 points. They I mean, played Maine and Dartmouth. Yeah, that is not Indiana. That is not. Uh, he's he's confident. He's uh, getting confidence. Uh, I don't. I don't. No way. No Cody way. Zeller's still a freshman. Jack Cooley's going to put up two points on like one of seven shooting. Anthony, That's what his game's going to be. Anthony Davis is overrated. Even though he played, <laughs> he played well against Anthony Davis. I'm I'm not buying the hype. <laughs> Anthony Davis and Jack Cooley should be in the same conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> so what's there's another then, game, a little what we said, a regional rivalry. UConn and Holy Cross are squaring off at one PM on ESPN three. 
on as you Sunday. were talking about or on Sunday. Um, excuse me. These times, teams really don't like each other. Holy Cross, they beat BC by 22. That's maybe one positive thing we can take out of their season. But UConn should definitely take care of business on Sunday, right, Scott? Yeah, I mean, Holy Cross is probably similar to Harvard in the fact that they are not that big of a squad. They run these set offenses like these uh, lesser athletic teams need to. So look for a Drummond in their front line to really just crush all hope for the Holy Cross uh, team and and really just take it to them and beat them early and beat them often. Yeah. I'm I'm pulling for Jack Coley, man. (laughs) Clearly, clearly. Um, But, you know, uh, there are going to be bets, but the lines haven't come out yet. So stay tuned. Uh, Visit our website at sixovertimes.us to follow that. Um, you know, there's a little bets tab up there and, and you'll be able to see that. Um, but you know what? Thanks. Thanks again for listening and, uh, you know, enjoy your Saturday afternoon and evening of, of college basketball. Uh, focus on those big East games. There, there are a lot of good ones. Um, you know, for Chaz Wagner, my esteemed colleague and co-host, I'm Scott Wildermuth. Uh, thanks for checking us out, and uh, make sure to hit us up on sixovertimes at gmail.com with comments, questions, thoughts, anything you got. Uh, peace. Later.